Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. It's uh, been a minute since I've been up here. Uh, excited to uh, share with you what uh, God has shown me uh, in the last week or so, studying through Romans 6. Um, really, really important uh, passage if we are to understand the, the Christian life. Um, in my seminary studies, we're actually required to, for one of our core classes, to um, memorize and dissect and just tear apart Romans 6 uh, because it's so vital and so critical to understanding what it means when Paul says that we are supposed to walk in newness of life. Uh, and so that's what the message this morning is titled. If, for those of you who are interested in messages being titled, you can go ahead and go with that. Um, but we're going to be reading, uh, if you've got your Bibles from Romans chapter 6, uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 18. Uh, I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, so uh, if, you're, if you're used to Brett and the NIV and some of the words are different, that's why. Um, but join with me um, as we listen to the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin uh, as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, And, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Amen. Uh, For those of you who are into uh, pop culture a little bit, uh, you you may have heard of this string of seven books, eight movies that came out about 10, 12, 15 years ago about this little wizard boy named Harry Potter and all of his adventures. Well, during the course of Harry's adventures, he comes across this house elf named Dobby. And Dobby is a servant 
to uh, the house of one of the main antagonists, uh, the sub-antagonists, of the entire plot of Harry Potter. And, and Dobby's charge is to try to undermine Harry Potter the whole way, but every time he goes up against it, he knows it's wrong. And so he can't quite bring himself to do it. And he, he, he has no way out, though. He's bound by the code of house elves and all of the laws and everything to serve this wicked family. The only way that he can get out is if that master somehow gives him a gift. And by that, he is then set free. And so over the course of the first little bit of this, of this whole saga, um, Harry actually works with Dobby and, and manages to figure a way that the house master inadvertently gives Dobby a sock. And Sabi sa Dobby says, Master has given Dobby a sock. Dobby is free, and he's gone. He's out of there. He is no longer here. He is completely free, and he has gone in a totally different direction. And for the rest of his life, Dobby devotes himself to trying to help Harry uh, and, and do the right things. Uh, it's a pop culture reference. It's a secular movie. But I think it really illustrates very, very well the idea of newness of life. And that's what we're going to be unpacking today. Paul starts here in, in verse 1 uh, of chapter 6. And he asks, and he says, you know, what do we say then? Are we, are we supposed to continue sinning? He starts it with a question. Now, most of us know this. Some of us may not. But Paul did not write Romans or any of his letters in chapters or verses. It was one really long letter. And so it's a continuation of his previous thought which comes from the very back end of chapter 5. And what Paul is really effectively saying there is that... Uh, I'm going to read verse 20 and 21 here for you from chapter 5. Because he says, The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace may reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So... Paul comes to this next thought and is saying, okay, if I've just said this, the first thought is that, well, maybe because grace is here, maybe we should just continue sinning more because if, if grace outseeds sin and we want the most amount of grace that we can possibly have, we should just keep on sinning because then there's a whole lot of grace and God gets more glory because the more grace, pours out, more grace God pours out, the more glory he gets. That's the line of thinking that Paul is, is moving down. Not that he believes that, but that he understands that that's the rational mind. That's the mind of man and not the mind of Christ that would follow this out to that logical conclusion. We can see that Paul doesn't believe that because in the very next verse, in verse 2, he, he responds with a very forceful uh, rejection or repudiation of that. Now, the English uh, sometimes does a good job, sometimes doesn't do a very good job with this. Um, it says, by no means, your, your, your Bibles may say, may it never be, may, maybe God forbid, depending on your translation. Um, all of those are colloquialisms to try to reject this very forcefully. In the Greek... And I have two classes of Greek under my belt now, so yay. I know what I'm talking about. I'm not just saying what somebody else said. Uh, it, the, wor the, word, it, the two words are actually me genoita. And me is a negative. Genoita means to exist or to come into being. And so when Paul says me genoita, what he is saying is the most forceful negative that exists 
in old Greek language. There's, there's nothing, he can't put it in, in any more, uh, any stronger of a term than what he has said right there. Uh, so by no means, may it never be, God forbid, again, that's how we would understand it, but just understand that this is an incredibly forceful rejection of the question that he just asked. Should, God, should we sin more so that God's grace and God's glory can abound even more? Absolutely not. No way, Jose. Get out of here with that nonsense. It's absurd. Not only is it a bad idea to, to think like that and to act like that in Paul's mind, he is saying that it is inconceivable. And unlike somebody else we know from pop culture, that word actually does mean what he thinks it means. It's abhorrent, and Paul uses this word a lot. He's going to use it again later in this passage. Um, what he's trying to convey and what I want us to understand this morning is that uh, this should be understood in this day and age. Uh, or in this day and age, it's not understood. It should be understood. But we'll be clear just for the sake of the times in which we live. Claiming to follow Christ and persisting in behavior that God has declared sinful are two behaviors that are utterly incompatible with one another. They do not mesh. They cannot coexist. I found it interesting when I, when I was preparing this message that it falls right in the middle of, of Brett's series of The Way because there, there, there are no other options. There's two things, and they cannot cross paths with one another. Paul goes through and continues to talk about this death with, uh, with Christ the death of Christ, and identifying us in the death of Christ. And he actually mentions something that, that's pretty important, but he only mentions it in passing in this, in this, uh, in this passage. Uh, and that's the concept of baptism. Um, so if you look at verses 3 through 5, he's talking about how we are buried with Christ. We're baptized into his death. We're baptized into Christ, and that is the identifying factor. We are, um, we're baptized into his death. And to understand what he's saying here, uh, we need to kind of unpack this a little bit because baptism, uh, depending on your, on how you, how you believe baptism works, some of us believe in believer's baptism, some of us believe in infant baptism, some believe, us in, some believe in being sprinkled, some believe in being fully immersed, some believe being in fully immersed once, some believe in being fully immersed three times, forwards, backwards, there, there's all kinds of different ways that we interpret this. Uh, baptism historically has been associated with water, but it's a little bit more intense than that. Uh, the word baptism, it's a transliteration from Greek, and it actually literally does mean to immerse, but it's the same type of word that's used in the dyeing process, and I don't mean the process of death, I mean the process of, of coloring white cloth into something else. Um, when you baptize that into that water, uh, the, and, and the dye that's in there, the cloth is no longer white. It is so immersed and so drowned in the substance that it's being immersed into that when it comes back up, it's taken on the characteristics and the appearance uh, and everything of the thing that it has been baptized into. It is no longer what it was. It is what it is now, and there's no going back. For the first century Christian, they would have been clear on this. That, that, that is something that they, were, that they did regularly. We see the reference to Lydia, the dealer in purple, you know, arguably someone who was dyeing purple cloth and, and using that. So this is a familiar reference. This word has a connotation of being drowned. 
And so, uh, in effect, what Paul is saying is you have been drowned in Christ. And when you come back up, there's no going back. It's what... it. It's his characteristics that are in you now. It's his appearance that is on you. You are in him. And that is uh, quite important. In this passage, there's several prepositions that we want to take a look at, too. We were, we were buried with Christ by baptism into death. That's, uh, that, that's the gist of it. And so what that means is that it helps, it symbolizes us. It helps us take our place within the death of Christ. We're buried with him by baptism into death. It also helps us, both the one being baptized uh, and to the ones who are, who are witnesses to the baptism, to remember our death. It remembers what we are. Uh, it, re- it reminds us of where we're going and what we've been rescued from. Uh, And then it demonstrates by being risen um, both in the finished work on the cross and the future work where we are going to be raised. We have been spiritually raised, but we're going to be raised again uh, in in the future. And that's why sometimes you'll hear as a person is baptized, I had this drilled into my my brain as a good little Southern Baptist boy growing up, uh, buried as with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life during the baptism process. If you look at the next verse, however, we've got a, a, a separate set of prepositions and verb phrases that come through. Uh, and it says that uh, you know, we were buried with, by him, with him by baptism into death uh, in order that Christ, just as Christ was, he was what? What was he? He was raised uh, from where? From the dead. By what? By the glory of the Father. Right? And Why? Why? So that we can walk in newness of life. That's right. So all of that is linked together. It's because so that we might walk in newness of life. And I submit this to you, friends, this morning. The same glory of the Father that raised Christ from the dead is the exact same glory of the Father that raised you and me spiritually from the grave. And the same glory of the Father that will, in the future, raise us literally from the grave. Never to die again, just like Christ. Christians are united to Christ in a way that is well explained, maybe best explained, um, by a song that we sing here on occasion, here, uh, here at Bay Ridge. Uh, and the chorus starts, says, To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to his. Our old self is gone, dead, finito, finished, RIP, right? The body of sin has been brought to nothing. It's worthless. It's useless. It is powerless. It is of no effect. And because of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, we who have been baptized with him and spiritually raised because of him, we are free from this body of sin, and we are free to live outside of its authority. 
we are able, as hard as this is to understand, and as much as we're, we as humans are not very good at it, we are able to choose to not sin. To not miss the mark. For those of you who aren't aware what sinning is, it's an archery term. Anything other than the bullseye, and the archer has sinned. We are able to do what is right. Before Christ, we did not have that ability. However, it only works the way it's supposed to when we reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, just as Christ died to sin once for all. And as he was raised, the life he lives, he lives to God. And verse 12 through 14 is where the rubber really meets the road. Just because we have the ability to not sin does not mean that we are going to never sin again. There are some uh, branches of Christianity that seem to believe that you're, you're, you know, you're, you're immediately sanctified and you're never going to sin ever again and that's how you know that you are saved. I really hope that's not true because if it is true, I'm in a world of trouble. <laughs> just ask Ann, just ask my kids. Right? They'll vouch. Don't answer that, please. Um, but a lot of us are going to be in the same boat, right? We're, if, if that's true, we're in a lot of trouble. And, and it's not my experience that that's true. Um, I'm uh, not proud of it, but I, I get to experience God's forgiveness awesome, uh, a lot. And I'm, I'm grateful that I get to, uh, but I wish I didn't have to as much as I did. Just because we have that ability doesn't mean that we're not going to sin ever again. That nature, it's still there. Uh, it's lying dormant in a sense. Uh, it, it's waiting to be fed, and it's waiting to take back what, it's th what it thinks is its rightful position, which is the throne of my life, the throne of your lives, the very thing that God, through Jesus, has deposed it from in our lives. We must not give any place to that. We must not feed that beast because when you feed that beast, it gets out of control really, really quickly. We have to reckon ourselves dead to that sin. Crucified with Christ, as Paul writes in Galatians 2, where he says, I am crucified with Christ, and the life that I live is not mine to do it as I please. It is Christ through me. Christ bought us. He is our master now. And we must obey him. We must not present ourselves to sin to let sin run its course. As a Christian, as I said before, it's fundamentally incompatible with the life uh, of a Christian to willingly, persistently continue on in doing that. It doesn't compute. Being transferred from death to life, I'm going to pull from Galatians a little bit because Paul mentions some similar things here. But in chapter 1 of Galatians, when he's writing his open, he talks about how um, he's giving praise to God in his thanksgiving for delivering us from this present evil age, from this evil word. And the language that he's using there is similar language to here. Um, not A to B, but close. And the language there is basically something to the effect of we have, been, we have been woven in. We are part of a tapestry that's already been woven. We're in there. And... and None of us has ever been woven into a tapestry, but uh, you could probably imagine that if you were, how stuck you would be, right? And how unable you would be to do anything to pull yourself out of that, right? Well, God has ripped us out of that tapestry, and he has woven us into this tapestry of deliverance and grace over on this side. That's the language that Paul is, is using here. We're being transferred. 
Sin has no dominion over us. You know, we must obey. It's really uh, living out of the dead is almost the literal terminology that's being used here. And that's also a seemingly inconceivable thing, but it is made possible, and it's only made possible by the one who earned it for us. And that is Jesus, our Christ. That's the same idea that we're talking about here. So sin has no, should have no dominion over us. We're not under the law anymore. The law existed so that sin would be, would be made evident, right? So we would be able to see how sinful we were and then turn to the grace of God. Those of us who have been redeemed, we are not under that law any longer. We are under grace. So Paul follows this whole thought process through here, and then he follows up with another question, and it's going to take on the same tack uh, as verse 1. And he asks another kind of rhetorical question. Remember, remember this Greek lesson from verse 2. It's going to be here. Paul says, you know, is it logical now, because we don't answer to the law, we're not subservient to the law, we are not held um, to account by the law anymore, is it okay to sin because we're not under the law, we're under grace? And so this is not a broad statement that he's making before, where it's like, can we just continue on sinning ad nauseum and uh, live in persistent lives of sin, and, and that be okay? That's verse 1. Verse 15 is asking, you know, is it okay that we, that we continue to sin? Uh, even, even the missteps, even, uh, even the odd sin here and there, the little white lie, the, oh, it's not that big of a deal type of sin, and that kind of stuff. And Paul is rejecting that very forcefully as well. Both of these things that he, that he uses um, just by means of an aside are, are, are a, um, a rhetorical technique that's called validation. He's, um, he's raising and anticipating an opposition to a statement. He's almost anticipating the question that's going to come next so that he can deal with that. Um, it's basically you bring up this competing thought of objection, you, you give words to it, um, and then you overcome it with a more complete or more correct answer, and that's what Paul's doing here. So he's disarming the thought processes of the day with what he's writing here. Now, there are some folks in Christianity today, uh, and this is, this is the hard part, this is the unpopular part, it's a good thing that I've probably already been canceled on social media as well. Um, they don't want to admit this, and this is in Christianity as well, that, that folks will downplay sin, or they'll just play it off, or they'll say, oh, we're all broken, which is a true statement, but they'll use it to kind of excuse the behavior and model it as acceptable somehow. Um, and, and that's the end of it. They, they believe that. Um, Paul is forcefully and outright rejecting that line of thought here. We will continue to sin because we do have our sin nature, but that does not make it okay. We are still in need of God's grace, and we are still in need of asking for forgiveness uh, and repenting of that sin. Just because it's still there and because we're forgiven for it over here does not mean that it's okay to do this. It's not okay to just say, oh, God, di Jesus died for that, so I can go ahead and do this and I'll just ask for forgiveness later. That's not okay. That's trampling the blood of Christ is what that is. And so Paul is just rejecting this at all. And he's not, again, I want to be really clear, he's not saying that we're never going to ever sin again. That's not what he's saying here. It's all about the attitude towards sin. We need to keep an a, a attitude towards sin where it is unthinkable uh, and abhorrent to us because that's exactly what it is to God. This is what Paul is laying out in, um, 
in verses 15 uh, through 18. And he talks about it through this kind of phrasing. He says, you know, if you present yourselves obedient to anybody uh, as an obedient slave, then you're a slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So whichever you serve, that's who you're the slave to. Now, Paul's going to use slavery language a lot uh, in his letters. Uh, And he does that because it's familiar to many of his recipients in his audiences. We know, for instance, that Philemon was a slave owner because the whole purpose of Philemon is writing appealing for his slave Onesimus. Paul's writing to the Romans here, and nobody would understand slavery better than the people in Rome. During this time frame, uh, you are, you're looking at about a million people, give or take. They take rough estimates. It's between half a million and two million people, so kind of shoot for the middle, I guess. Um, and about 30 to 40%, so around about a third of the people in the city of Rome at that time were slaves. So hundreds of thousands of slaves in Rome, probably including people who are, who are hearing this letter as it's read out to them. So Paul's going to incorporate this, um, this type of language because it doesn't take much imagination for them to get the point that Paul's trying to lay across. It's a little more difficult for us because we're not used to that type of, type of situation. But that's kind of where we're at here. And his point is, look, if you were a slave and you had been set free by your master or you had been freed from your master is probably a better way to say that, why go back? All you're doing is putting yourself back in slavery again. And you've been made free, but you choose to go back here. Doesn't make much sense. Similarly, if you were at slave, slave slave freedom was very difficult um, in the Roman Empire. They they passed ordinances and restrictions to to make the the pathway to freeing your slave very narrow. So that's that's kind of the uh, aberration. But what was more likely to happen was that you would have uh, a slave here, uh, and that slave would be transferred, the ownership would be transferred. Um, or there'd be like joint ownership or, or something like that. So if, if I was a slave in Rome, and my ownership was transferred to somebody else, I can't go back and serve that person, because they're not my master anymore. This person over here is my master. So to go back over here, and to continue to serve this person, and try to put myself under the under the lordship of this person is, it's not possible. It, it doesn't work. It, it, it's, again, the, those scenarios, again, uh, are, they're inconceivable. They just don't work. It would be just like our friend Dobby saying, you know what, I'm free and everything, but I'm going to continue to serve the Malfoy house. Even though I'm free, even though they're terrible and they were awful to me and they made me do all kinds of things I didn't want to do, I'm going to go back and I'm going to serve the Malfoys. When you put it in terms like that, it sounds ridiculous. But that's the type of stuff that Paul's warning about here. That's the type of stuff that we do, um, unfortunately, we do pretty regularly um, to, to do that. I'm as guilty of it as the next guy. So when I have one finger pointing out here, I've got four 
of my own pointing right back at me because I'm aware I do this all the time. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it okay. But as Paul finished, he says, thanks be to God that you, that we who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. We're obedient from the heart uh, to what we're committed. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? No. What was, what, was, uh, what was David, the king, not me? What was he called? What was his name in, in the Bible? Do you remember what God referred to him as? The man after, man after God's own heart, right? David was by no means clean, of a whist, clean as a whistle, right? He had, he had some pretty sordid things that, that he was responsible for, um, either by acting or by choosing to not act during his lifetime, yet it was the posture of his heart that, um, that God saw. Um, and deep down in the core of who he was, he wanted to honor God, and he wanted to serve God, and he wanted to glorify God in the things that he said and he did, even though he didn't get it right. Thanks be to God that that is us as well. Even though we're not going to get it right all the time, uh, even though we are sometimes going to go back uh, and try to uh, serve that old master, uh, in our heart of hearts, if we, are, uh, if we truly belong to God, if we truly have been delivered from, uh, from here to here and transferred from this ownership to this ownership, Paul says we're not slaves here, we're slaves here now. He uses that word constantly. If you read his, verse, his, his epistles, it's always Paul a doulos, slave. Every single time he writes, that's the first thing he says about himself. He's a slave to God. He's a slave to righteousness. And he's explaining that that's the same to us. And just because we're a slave to God and we're a slave to uh, his economy and we're, and we're members of his kingdom... Uh, does not mean that uh, it's terrible or you know, God is, uh, is, a, is a malevolent dictator or anything like that. Yeah, God, God's a dictator. He's an autocrat. It's his way or the highway. That's, you know, that's what it is. You can make an ACDC reference in there if you want to. The, that's how it is. And that's fine. Because, as Brett has said, and as uh, Tim Keller has written, there's freedom in the right bonds. And being a slave to righteousness and being obedient to this standard of teaching, being set free from sin, to be able to not sin and to be able to choose the right, is, uh, that's freedom. That's the right bonds to be in. So we should, friends, we should continue to try to press and be um, a slave to righteousness and not a slave to sin. Okay. So that's all great. I gave you a Greek lesson. I gave you a history lesson. I gave you a pop culture lesson. I threw some Bible in there. So what, right? What's the point? Okay. Let's, let's apply this. Three questions. Three questions. Number one, am I in Christ? Have I been delivered from slavery to sin and from the old self? Have I been buried as with Christ? Have I been raised to walk in this newness of life, this servitude to the good? Have I? If you have, awesome, amazing, hallelujah, praise the Lord. 
If you have not, please, please, please talk to one of the elders here. Have that conversation. If there's any kind of, of pricking at your heart in, uh, in relation to this, talk to somebody. You know, those of you that, that are watching online, watching at home, maybe watching this later, call the office. Talk to somebody you know. Maybe you've got a friend who's up here preaching right now. I'll talk to you. I'm happy to. Talk to somebody. This is the most important conversation that you will ever have in your life because it affects your destiny forever. Second question. If we are in Christ, if we have been transferred from um, servitude to sin to servitude to righteousness, how do I respond to that idea of being baptized, of being immersed with Christ into life and death? What are the things that God has laid before me that I should be doing in obedience to him? Only you know what those things are. We've all got them. I know what mine are. My wife knows what hers are. My son knows what his are. You know what yours are. If you don't know what yours are, pray and ask God to show you what they are, because he will. But we all have things that we need to move forward in and to be obedient in. Um, and that posture of how do we respond? How do we continue to walk forward? How do we view this? When we get the view right, it changes everything over here. And then lastly, uh, third question. In what areas do I tend to flee back to the old master? Again, we've all got them. I know what mine are. But we all have areas in which we tend to try to go back to here. And that's not where we should be. It may feel good for a time, um, but the bill eventually comes due, and it's not one that any of us want to pay. Fortunately, Jesus took care of that for us, to the glory of the Father. As we prepare to come to the table here, I want to... Uh, to share something with you. One last pop culture reference, I promise, and then I'm done. Brett's been talking about this show. Uh, you may have heard about it, The Chosen. He's, he's plugged it pretty good. I know it was in The Bridge this week and everything like that. Um, I'll vouch for it. I've seen every episode that's been, that's been published, put out. Christian media, that's a really low bar to clear to be really good. It's good media, period. Very early on, um, and this encapsulates really kind of what, the, what it looks like. Um, very early on, without giving much away, they, they portray Mary Magdalene's story. Um, and it's kind, of like, it's kind of like if you guys saw the movie Crash, where everybody's relationships kind of intersect and everything like that, there's, a little bit of, there's an element of that going on. And so Nicodemus has been summoned to investigate this miracle that may have happened. Uh, and... Mary can't really tell him anything about what happened because she was possessed before and she's, she's healed now. She doesn't remember very much about what happened before. And so when he's pressing her to try to fit, get to the bottom of what had happened, she says this line that's just so... Uh, it's so worthy of a T-shirt. But it's, it's, it's a powerful, punchy 
line, and it's one that sticks with you. And she just kind of looks at him, and she just says, I was one way, now I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. That's the only answer she can give him. It's the best answer she can give him, but it's the only answer she can give him. And that is what it looks like to walk in newness of life. There's no semblance, no looking back. It's full steam ahead, following Jesus because of the things that he's done for us and because we owe him our allegiance both out of obedience and both out of gratitude. So we're going to go ahead and, uh, and come to the table uh, this morning so you guys will want to get your packets out and, uh, and get those ready. We're going to have the table of the Lord here. It's the table of redemption, the table of newness of life, the table of call it whatever you want. Again, if you want to title the table, go ahead. It's the Lord's table. And I want to encourage you, friends, if you have been transferred from death to life, if the, your ownership under slavery of sin has been moved to becoming a servant of righteousness, if you've been redeemed, buried with Christ, baptism into his death, and raised to walk in newness of life as a Christian, come and take. This is the Lord's reminder for us, the believer, of the things that he has done for us. What I receive from the Lord, I now pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink of this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, as we partake of your table, we thank you for delivering us from the clutches of sin and death. We praise you for the mercy you have shown to us in sending your own son to be broken in our place and on our behalf. As we take this bread, let us remember that it is only by your grace and for your glory that we are able to do so. Remind us that because of your sacrifice, we are no longer slaves to sin and death. Thank you, Father, for giving us the bread of life. Friends, take and eat. Jesus, this cup is the covenant you established in your blood that our sins might be forgiven. You rescued us from ourselves and our hellbound path by pouring out your life. May it never be that we trample this by continuing to live in service to our former master. As we take this cup, may we remember your suffering in order that we might be made free. And may we ever live in service to you, our King, through this cup of redemption. Friends, take and drink. Holy Spirit, it is only by your power that we can live as slaves to righteousness. We ask now that you would pour yourself out upon your servants here, that we might present ourselves as instruments for your use. Guard us against ourselves and against our adversary, and guide us in the ways of righteousness. May we be pleasing in your sight, now and always. 
by following in your footsteps and not our own. We pray these things for the Father's glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read a benediction out of Hebrews chapter 13. Receive this blessing from the Lord. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, go with the blessing of the Lord, and as Brett would say, use that to be a blessing to other people. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.